She was a star on two continents, defeating males here in the United States before that became de rigueur. Now, Weya will take her place in the Hall of Fame. We'll talk with one of her owners. Plus, is there one gene in a horse's DNA that will determine if a thoroughbred is a real runner or not? There just might be. And we'll talk with the researcher who's discovered it on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hit the big finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. The next big race day coming up in this country this summer is Whitney Handicap Day at Saratoga on Saturday, August 3rd. One of the undercard races that day is the Weyest Stakes, a mile-and-a-quarter turf race for older fillies and mares. Do you know who Weya actually was and what she did? Here's a final bit by Weya coming like a storm on the outside. And here's Weya on the outside, and she's coming with a rush. Coming on to the wire, it's between Teller and Weya, and the filly Weya now takes the lead coming on to the wire. Weya raced her four- and five-year-old seasons here in the United States after running at age three in her native France. Over there, she ran eight times, winning three including the prestigious Group 2 Prix de la Opera. Then she was sent to New York, where at age four, she won two of the biggest turf races for fillies and mares, the Diana at Saratoga and the Flower Bowl at Belmont Park. In the Diana, Weya tied a world record for a mile and an eighth on grass, winning in 145 and two-fifths. Tentam had set the record in 1973. She also won twice at age four against males, including the Man of War Stakes. Then, Weya was sold by the influential French art dealer Daniel Wildenstein to a pair of American owners, Peter Brandt, who you probably know is in the middle of a personal racing revival after being away from the sport for several years, and George Strawbridge, our first guest here on this show. For Strawbridge and Brandt, Weya won five major races in 1979, her five-year-old season. Among them were two wins on dirt, her first two starts ever on dirt, the Bell Dame and Top Flight Handicap. The Top Flight was against males, and she made up a 17-length gap in that race. She was voted champion older female in 1979, and this summer, 40 years later, Weya takes her place at the Racing Hall of Fame in Saratoga, and we welcome her co-owner, the equally legendary George Strawbridge, back to Win the Gate to reminisce about her. You obviously didn't own her for all of her career, but what did campaigning this mayor mean to you? My goodness. Well, it, I mean, she's the champion, and it's obviously very rewarding when you're associated with an animal that's so superior in so many ways. It's not often you see a horse sold while at the top of her game like Weya was. How did that sale come about? This is all through uh, through an agent 
And originally, Marshall knew Peter much better than I did, and it was originally Marshall and, and Peter Brandt that were going to buy it, and Marshall was getting some cold feet, or rather, he, he didn't quite have the resources to buy 50%, so he, he asked Peter, and he got me in for a third, and then at the last second, ah, he dropped out, Jenny, so I ended up with 50% of Wea simply because Jenny dropped out, and, and so that's, that's how I got into Wea. So when Peter Branton, you bought her, you transferred Wea from the trainer she'd had for her whole career, Angel Panna, to David Whiteley. How concerned were you that the trainer change would affect her performance? Uh, well, I, I think you're always a, a little concerned, but um, at that stage, um, Peter, really the um, the senior partner, because he was the original investor in Wea, and um, that's what he wanted to do. So I went along with him, and you know, and, and it worked out extremely well. That's how good she was. It didn't matter who trained her; she was she was a, a superior animal. Now, Weya toted as much as 131 pounds that year. That's what she carried to win the Santa Barbara Handicap. What made Peter Brandt and you go along with the racing secretaries who assigned her that much weight? Holy cow. I, <laughs> you know, that's that's the way handicapping used to be. Remember Kelso? Oh, sure, heavyweight champion. Yeah, no, I mean, my God, he... What was it? He, he, he would carry 135 pounds or 136 pounds, you know, and running against horses that he was giving 25 pounds to. Like, I, I mean, it was extraordinary, the handicapping in those days. And nowadays, the handicapping really doesn't exist. They call these races handicaps, but they really are just a little adjustments. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think... It's the fill races, probably. George Strawbridge of Augustine Stable is with us here on In the Gate. Now, you certainly know about how to change tactics when it comes to business strategy. For those who don't know, Mr. Strawbridge used to own the Tampa Bay Rowdies of the North American Soccer League, a league of which I was a huge fan, and he tirelessly advocated for changing the league to be indoors, thinking it would increase scoring and be more attractive to a younger audience. And that all happened at around the same time as Weah's career was ending. You also altered the business strategy of the Buffalo Sabres as well as a director of that hockey team for three decades. So in light of all of that, what changes would you like to see in the sport of thoroughbred racing to make it more appealing to fans and betters? I think the obvious thing you have to do is to reform racing. I mean, you take a look at Santa Anita this year, and that, you know, it was shocking what went on. But that sort of, you know, racehorse deaths are, you know, are a, are a horrible result of, you know, the very liberal, very liberal, um, you know, testing rules that we have, and the, and the liberal ideas about, uh, you know, uh, drugs. It is just, uh, it is just shocking. And what has happened now with Santa Anita? I mean, the big change, the big change is the publicity it received. There, there have been horses 
dying on a regular basis, you know, throughout tracks. And the Churchill Downs has a higher death rate, you know, per number of race starts than Santa Anita does. But you never hear about Churchill Downs. It's just that Santa Anita now has gotten this, you know, exposure and very adverse publicity that has been taken up by the government. My goodness, Diana Feinstein wrote a very compelling letter. I mean, she's a, you know, she's a major senator in the, in the Senate, and she says, it's the only, this is the only sport in our country where we accept, even expect, athletes to die in competition. I mean, how awful is that to read? what our sport has become. I mean, it is just alarming. Well, has it become that, or has this sort of thing been there all the time, maybe not to quite the degree we saw at Santa Anita this winter? Ah, it's... I'm afraid with the liberal use of of drugs, it has been there the whole time. I mean, it's... it's, uh, uh, You know, you... What is it in in 2018? That was last year. They figured that there was uh, 493 horse deaths. That is racing. That's 493 deaths in the United States just racing, not training. So I don't know whether you could even double that. But that's very alarming. But you've seen this sport for so many years, and this sort of thing has never not been there, why do you think you and others are paying so much attention to it now? We were paying attention to it, you know, before, but our voices were like voices in the wilderness. We backed, uh, you know, Joe Pitts' bill in the house, all of which didn't really get any, any major support. It's because the HPPA likes the way the system is now, which is a very liberal medication system. So what do you want to see done? I want to see done the Horse Racing Integrity Act is the only thing available now. So I think that should be passed, and we should have one national governing body, so to speak, and and, in which they would be able to take uh, uniform steps to reform horse racing and uh, hopefully get rid of the drugs. What what the Strana Group has done, you know, is really outstanding. And all they do is get criticism from the HPBA about the reforms that they've injected. But, But they've already saved horses. They've already saved horses by uh, having this pre-testing procedures. And as Linda Stronick says, uh, she said unsavory trainers and owners contributed to all these deaths at her track. And, you know, she's been realistic, unfortunately. I mean, it, what, 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 it, what has been going on in racing in this country is not only alarming, but it should be intolerable. Well, we began this discussion talking about Wea. We'd like to end with talking about Wea. Her induction will be the only the second time, symbolically anyway, that Wea will have appeared in Saratoga. 
Her win in the Diana was her only start there. Will you be there for the induction? Oh, absolutely. I have very fond memories of my association with Way and what a, what a great race mare she was. Well, we wish you all congratulations, and hopefully some of these suggestions you've made will be listened to by the appropriate people. Thank you so much for a few minutes, Mr. Strawbridge. We so appreciate it. Not at all. I appreciate the call. Is there a magic gene in a horse's DNA that indicates whether that horse will be a real runner or not? It couldn't be that easy to detect something like that, right? Well, it just might be. We'll delve into that one as the In the Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In the Gate. You hear people in the thoroughbred industry, especially these days, defend the practice of racing horses by saying that thoroughbreds are doing what they love to do, run. But here's my question. If you could ask thoroughbred racehorses whether they really want to run or not, how many of them would really say yes? All of them? None of them? Somewhere in between, maybe? Well, we can't actually ask the horses their preference, but there may be a way to find the answer another way. It's the discovery of the so-called motivator gene, which controls a horse's attitude, for lack of a better word, about their exercise. You know how there's an app for just about everything? Well, we've talked on this show before about the so-called speed gene that can help determine whether a racehorse is best for sprinting or for long distance. The research on that topic came largely from Dr. Emmeline Hill, a genomics scientist at University College in Dublin, Ireland. We had her on this show to talk about the myostatin gene, And we welcome Dr. Hill back to In the Gate to talk about the PRCP gene, also called the motivator gene. In layman's terms, doctor, what is the motivator gene and how does it work? Uh, We've identified a major gene that contributes to the chance of a horse having a race course start. The gene is called PRCP, and that's the gene that we've referred to as the motivator gene. And we've called it that because it's been found in mice to be associated with the frequency that mice spend running on a little treadmill wheel, you know, a mouse wheel, exercise wheel. And it's thought that, so when you put put one group of mice into a, a cage with an exercise wheel, some of them will want to run all day, others will choose not to. When researchers looked at the difference between these two groups of mice, they found this gene was influencing or associated with that trait. Uh, it appears that it's uh, some sort of positive feedback loop between the muscle and the brain. So when we looked in our study, where we looked at thousands of horses, it was you know somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 thoroughbred horses. Uh, a portion of those that had never had a race course start as a two-year-old or a three-year-old, it was something in the order of about 15% of those horses hadn't raced. We found that the difference, the major difference between those two groups of horses highlighted this gene. Is this like being a person being predisposed to depression or alcoholism or some other behavioral condition? Does this gene actually determine attitude? We don't know because we can't measure that exactly in horses. 
So, you know, all we know is that we had a group of unraced horses and we had a group of raced horses. And as you know, horses can be unraced for a variety of reasons, either through injury or through inherited disease that may limit uh, exercise performance or an assessment by the trainer, the owner, that that horse may not be suitable or good enough for racing. We hadn't anticipated that that we may identify behavior genes. But if you think about it, you know, trainers will often refer to the horse's attitude to their work as being more important or at least as important as physical attributes. And I think people, you know, in the horse racing industry certainly can recognize that, you know, in the morning there'll be some horses that will be really anticipating time to go out and exercise and they'll be excited and, you know, banging the stable door where there will be other horses that may be not so excited about the prospect of going out and exercising. And I think, you know, there are certainly in, in human populations, and I'm not sure whether this gene uh, has been looked at specifically in, in humans. I think if it had, I probably would have found it in my research of, of the literature. But, you know, there are, there are some people that are more inclined to go out and exercise, and there are others that may be more considered to be more couch potatoes. And there's something to do with a uh, positive feedback when you go out and exercise you feel good, you want to do more. And there appear to be a number of genes that influence that behavioral effect. But it's all, it's all linked. It's not just in the brain. It's all linked to the stimulus that uh, is occurring in the rest of the body that is probably, that message is probably then being translated to the brain. Well, as an adoptive father, I definitely have understood the idea of nature versus nurture, and that's Mm -hmm. pretty much where you're going here. Now, your research indicates with the 4,500 horses in your study that you can actually predict whether a thoroughbred will make it to the races as a two- or three-year-old. What is the test? Yeah, so we identified this gene, PRCP, and a number of other genes as the biggest signals, let's say, in our study. But of course, there are many genes that contribute to complex traits and and the environment plays a part as well. It's very important to note that genetics only contributes to a portion of the uh, variation in the trait. For our prediction model, we looked at genetic markers across the entire genome that have um, an additive effect altogether. And then we built a model based on machine learning methods that allows us to pick out the genetic markers that are together additively contributing to that trait. So when we build that model, we can then predict horses that have a high chance of having a race course start compared to those with a moderate chance of having a race course start and those that have a low chance of race course of a race course start. And what was really interesting about that is that while that was developed by comparing horses that raced and didn't race, when we looked at a set of horses that were sold at the sales in Australia as yearlings, so one-year-old horses that had never had a saddle on their back, and we ran the test before they had the chance to race, and then we assessed two years later um, how they had performed, we found that the horses that had the high genetic potential for a race course start, in fact, not only had fewer unraced horses, but they also had higher earnings and they were more likely to run in more races. So those are the horses that had raced, even though they were in the lower potential. So the other interesting thing about that is that these different groups, the high potential groups and the low potential groups that were presented or offered for sale, 
didn't have a significantly different sales price. So that suggests to us that this trait is not identifiable in the market by assessing the pedigree or looking at the horse, which are the usual ways of assessing a horse's potential for the racetrack. Yeah, I'll get to that part in a second, but I just want to make sure I heard you right. So there are all of these different markers that you add up cumulatively, and if the cumulative score is high enough, then these horses would have a a significant potential to make it to the races as two- or three-year-olds. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's right. So the cumulative score of genetic markers that are presumably linked or uh, representing genes across the entire genome. Dr. Emmeline Hilf of University College in Dublin, Ireland, joins us here on In the Gate. Now, we mentioned this study involved 4,500 horses. What did their trainers say about how your study compared with their intuition about these horses? When we collected the samples, we collected the samples with consent to be used in research, and we didn't ask at the time. So the only information we have on those horses is whether they raced or, or didn't race. So we haven't gone back to every single trainer with the results for each horse, but um, a number of our clients who have used the test have observed in relatively small sets of horses. So some people would have maybe tested 20 horses or there's 50 or 100 of their own horses. And they have seen a relationship between our prediction and what they have observed Uh, in terms of how their horses uh, have performed. So it appears in practice to be um, panning out. And often that's the, you know, the difficulty with, you know, scientific studies can be quite scientific and, you know, they show up, you know, statistically significant associations, but actually will they perform then in real life in practice? And it appears that while there are always going to be outliers and, you know, this is not prescriptive, it's not black and white, the patterns and the trends that we expect um, based on the science appear to be the, the trends that are observed in practice by, by owners and trainers. Right, and part of that practice is the sales, which you were referencing earlier, and I could see where trainers would be excited to have this kind of information, and I can see where breeders might not be so excited about it. Have your colleagues or you heard from breeders or trainers about how this might affect the industry? Yeah, well, the, the, the purpose of this is for the benefit of all horses and to improve the, the overall um, population well-being. So if you consider it in, in terms of the uh, population of thoroughbreds, the idea is to maximize or optimize breeding decisions so that the normal distribution curve shifts towards the right, which means that that would then favor the entire population as a whole. And the idea being not only for, for, for this trait, but let's say, for instance, health traits that may have a genetic contribution, that you're slowly and gradually moving the population away from those less favorable genetic variants. So while it may be perceived by some as uh, a negative, they don't want to know the horses that have the low potential, you can turn that around and think of any of these things in a positive way, and in fact, that's the way they should be looked at, is that this is an opportunity for the industry to uh, try to shift that curve in the favor of all horses. Well, you could say the same thing about assisted reproduction, too, but good luck getting breeders to go along with that one. <laughs> that's, an, 
entirely different conversation, I think, Barry. Now, what needs to happen for the process that you used in this study to evolve into some kind of standard procedure in this industry? Well, I think that we we offer individual tests to owners and, and breeders, and we only test with consent of the owner or an agent for the owner. There are many opportunities for the industry to look at not only this test, but other genetic information to apply it in a systematic way to improve the health and well-being of the thoroughbred population as a whole. The thoroughbred breeding industry is remarkably unusual in that unlike other animal breeding systems or other animal breeding industries, there is no systematic breed-wide genomic selection or genomic monitoring of the population. So there's an opportunity now for uh, the the breed organizations, thoroughbred breed organizations, to engage in a more proactive way using this data and other data that exists to better manage the population as a whole. And we have samples now and genetic information for over 15,000 thoroughbreds. And we all know that, you know, so many industries now are driven by data. We have a huge wealth of, of data that can be mined in a variety of different ways for the, for the benefit of the, of the population. Do you see that kind of thing actually happening? I'd love to think that it would happen. And I think that there is a much greater awareness now within the thoroughbred industry that genetics is a technology that is here to stay. When I started out on this journey, let's say, and it has been a long, windy, curvy journey for the last 10 years when I, since I launched the speed gene, there's, been a, there's certainly been a, a shift in attitude towards genetics. I think that when we first launched our first, you know, our genetic test of speed gene 10 years ago, there was maybe an element of suspicion or misunderstanding of the place for genetics in the industry. But I certainly think that that attitude is changing now that genetics is everywhere. You know, anytime you turn on the radio or watch the news, there's a, you know, a story of genetics, whether that's for people tracing their ancestry or understanding um, uh, disease markers or criminal cases. Genetics is everywhere. So it's, it becomes a much more comfortable conversation, I think, for people to have when they have greater understanding and comfort around something. And I think there's also an understanding now that genetics is not a silver bullet that's going to replace the knowledge of the horse and, and horsemanship and the knowledge of pedigrees. We're not, we're not here to disrupt the industry. We're here to help and use information uh, or, or provide information that can complement those skills that have been around for, for generations, for, for, for centuries. So, yes, I'm hopeful. I am very hopeful. Um, and I think that the industry sees that genetics will be part of the future. Wait a minute. Did you go to my mailbox before I did? Because I'm waiting for my DNA test results, and they haven't come back yet. Did you grab them before I did? <laughs> oh, fa- fa- it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating to see and to really know that you know that's what's inside you. That's you know part of who you are. It's not everything you mentioned. You know, nature and, and nurture, and obviously the the nurture environment and the mar- the you know when we're talking about horses, let's say the, the nurture environment and the management environment plays a huge role in getting the best out of a horse. And I think that's what it is. It's about maximizing the genetic potential that it is in every single individual by the environment, by that that nurturing environment. Well, I totally get that, and that's why I paid my money to do it. But like a lot of the breeders I was referencing earlier, 
I'm maybe not so sure I want to know exactly what's in there when I get my results back. Yeah, well, you're not looking so much at your, your pedigree. Breeders are every day looking at pedigree. They're every day trying to assess the genes that, are, that are, have been inherited by that individual. So what we can now do is color that pedigree. A pedigree is like, you know, seeing the world in black and white. We can now put color and dimension on that pedigree by using genetics. And breeders and owners do that every single day. Do I dare ask what the next research project is that's still in its uh, infantile stage in your lab? Oh, well, I could talk about one of probably 20 different projects, but we have a lot, uh, a lot of spinning plates uh, all the time. We are at the moment uh, finalizing some work on health traits and uh, that uh, some horses may be more predisposed to than others. And these would be health traits that may be performance-limiting traits. Oh, well, looks like I better keep your phone number handy. This is very interesting stuff and hopefully will help the breed, as you say, for many years to come. Dr. Emmeline Hill, thank you so much for taking a few minutes. Such a pleasure to chat again. My absolute pleasure, Barry. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Dr. Emmeline Hill and to George Strawbridge. You couldn't miss him if you tried. A caricature he was, dressed like Sherlock Holmes with his mutton-chop sideburns. The legendary John McCreerick, the British racing pundit, was constantly over the top and out of turn. But saying things that others couldn't, abrasive, misogynistic, belied a substance underneath the style. McCreerick's betting investigations uncovered a couple of scandals, and under all that bluster lay his guile. McCreerick wanted a reaction more than anything else, he embraced people who didn't share his views. It's not often that a racing figure engendered such viewer passion, but he'd constantly leave his audience bemused. He made his name on Channel 4 in Britain and other places, and we had him on in the early days of this show. The world's lost the one-of-a-kind announcer at age 79, and wherever he is now, his followers will go. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.